0: Hi, and welcome back to Pediatric Meltdown. I am so excited to bring Dr. Sloan back to you guys today. He's going to talk about one of my favorite metaphors that he uses, the metaphor of Tigger, Eeyore, and Goldilocks in mood regulation. So it's really a lot of fun. He is a board-certified practicing pediatrician and is considered a local, regional, and statewide expert in the diagnosis and treatment of pediatric disorders of mood, behavior, learning, and attention. He also serves as a trauma-informed medical consultant and provides trauma-informed and fetal alcohol syndrome disorder-informed training and consultation for a wide variety of child welfare agencies, community mental health groups, schools, courts, and primary care practices. Dr. Sloan trained at Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine and completed his specialized training in adolescent behavioral medicine at MSU in Kalamazoo, Michigan. He is a founding member and current medical director of the Children's Trauma Assessment Center at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Please join me in welcoming back Dr. Mark Sloan. Hey, Mark, how are you? Leah, how are you? I'm I'm good. good. I'm good. I want to welcome you back. I'm so glad. I think when we first did this, you were episode three, and Mm -hmm. I'm hoping my sound is better this go-round. I'm just so glad. I knew when you first came on that you would have to come back because you just have so much knowledge and so much to say. So thanks for doing this.
1: Glad to be here. This is exciting. Helps me break up my basement COVID command center days. Although (laughs) I'm about to emerge cuz i i have had my two two doses of my vaccine so
0: yay a, woohoo
1: 11 months down here so it's kind
0: of crazy wow wow i know it's just uh, i've had two but the rest of my family hasn't had any so we're still kind of on lockdown mode but uh, i feel i can like you said kind of venture out from the darkness <laughs> So, well, I'm hoping by the time that this airs that things are in a much better place because we'll be into March. So hopefully down the road we'll be good. Well, I just want to get started. And, you know, the first thing I want to say is that you are a very gifted clinician. And I think really diving into the the nitty-gritty when kids have behavioral difficulties. And there are so many things that we're supposed to take into account, like genetics, epigenetics, trauma, um poverty, racism, physical conditions, disparities that untangling all this, I mean, what it presents as is just a kid in a huge meltdown, and we're, you know, whether it's sobbing or throwing things. And we may be missing the mark because we're we're trying to fit it into a box like oh it's ADHD or oh it's oppositional defiant disorder not that i think those names really help with you know i mean what we're really trying to do is help a kid feel better and function better so can hmm. you talk a little bit about your mindset when you start working with a family that comes in saying help
1: of course, I w- I'd love to. The, and this model that we kind of developed is, doesn't really have limitations to diagnoses. And that's real, I think one of the points. We, we, and we And you said it already, you know, it's this triple whammy issue, you know, the, the, we call it embracing complexity. Sometimes primary care docs don't want to do that because it's too hard and it feels like it's overwhelming. But if you break it down, it's it's more digestible. So we always start with genetics and we look at prenatal exposure and that depends on where the child's coming from. But I've been struck by how many kids that, that I see in the school setting that aren't in child welfare, they're not foster kids, but they have significant prenatal exposure, often to stress. And I just saw a kid last week that had, uh, one of the, it was one of those dreadful situations at 28 weeks, the mom was told, it, it looks like your son has severe brain issues and we're quite sure that he's not going to be able to survive. So for 12 weeks, she heard that. And she said to us, I thought the only time I was going to see him was going to, was to say goodbye. And he was born 34 weeks. He was five pounds or four, four and a half pounds. But basically his brain, what he had microcephaly, but he was not at all what they thought. And so, and the stress that she went under that last 12 weeks was, it was hard to hear it in terms of her saying it. So prenatal exposure for strength, and we know stress Prenatal stress, when it's that level, and it can be from lots of things. Domestic violence is one of those things. That's probably the second worst prenatal exposure thing that we see in this uh, in this picture. Um, and then in our center, we do that. We do see child welfare kids. You know, this was data from uh, eight years ago. Thirty-eight percent of those kids, and there was lots of them, fifteen hundred. Had uh, diagnosed fetal alcohol syndrome or one of those uh, diagnoses. Um, this is crazy, and so this combined impact. We wrote a paper about that in 2007. Trauma plus FAS, you know, had, is worse than either one separately. It's kind of a a duh thing. My daughter would call, would call it the duh hypothesis. You know, of course, it's worse. But how do you? What does that mean to the practitioner? So we, we, we have been telling people, you've got to look at all these pieces and we've got a, and I, I have a slide I use of, and I'm showing you now, it's kind of a, it's a way of looking at that. When I first started my practice, I only dealt basically, I thought with genetic issues. I thought it was, oh yeah, this kid's got ADHD. And I can tell, even though the parents are saying it's not in the family, I can watch the dad in action and go wow, he hasn't sat down during the consult. He's been w- looking around my office, looking at my moldings, looking at the windows and cause he's a contractor guy and I'm, and the wife is embarrassed. And then she says to me, I don't know of anybody that's anxious. I'm watching her, she makes coffee nervous. You know, she's super anxious. And I'm thinking <laughs> to myself, wow, it's your child has both of those things and I'm watching it happen. And then I also had already heard about the siblings that were high achievers and I would sometimes meet with them and say, "You know, you should back off your little brother because he's quite smart, but he has both ADHD and anxiety, you have neither. You guys lucked out. And he's also 10 years younger than you and was an oops baby." So so my whole career was basically that kid and I got referrals from folks like you and other docs in, in Kalamazoo and I made a career out of trying to deal with those kids. And it was very exciting and fun to figure it out. And then I went to CTAC and realized that, oh, wait, the kids we're seeing there are those kids I just described, and they have those layers of prenatal exposure and trauma. So then it was like, whoa, now how do you deal with that? And so we've been trying to to look at that because here's what happens. One of the critical things is if you're just looking through that genetics lens this is kind of where mental health is right now and docs that do a lot of work with ADHD they're basically looking at that and saying i think i know what this is you know this mishmash of behavior is it's, it's got to be bipolar or complex ADHD and right and i'll tell you a story this you'll love this story leah when i was in practice and my nurse sue who you know well used to sometimes give me that look you know one of my famous lines is behind every great doctor is a nurse rolling her eyes. And uh, so Sue is one day says, looks at me and she goes, so does everybody we see have mild bipolar? It It was such a great line. And she wasn't really meaning it to be snarky, but then I went, oh my God, I had just finished my fellowship. And so I had learned how to use some of those meds for mild bipolar. And for me, that was like, Ooh, that's the, that's the ticket. I got all these kids that have these problems that aren't getting better with typical treatment for ADHD and anxiety. And so I would just start using low dose trileptal on them. You know, it was one of those things I thought was, and and I think some of them actually had it, but it was wild because a lot of them I find out later were traumatized kids, but they were wealthy, you know, they were traumatized by the, the dad checking out and not being part of the family anymore. Or as one kid said to me once, "Yeah, my dad's got three girlfriends and three different law offices. He doesn't think I know. But I think I taught him how to do it because I talked him into watching a movie. And the whole movie was about how to have an affair and, and not have your wife find out about it. This is a 12 year old kid. who was saying that, you know, who later ended up being a heroin overdose kid, you know? So this is this was really to me okay. This is we gotta we have to remember that this isn't the only lens. Know that we've worked with many fetal alcohol syndrome specialists around the country, and and they tend to be fairly siloed about the way they look at things, and they look at the same kid and say, oh no, this is definitely. Got it. This is a a crack baby. This is a meth baby. This is a kid with FAS. They have that kind of you. You know, unilens. And then, then we've got the trauma folks that I deal with all the time. And most of them are not physicians. Most of them are MSW, social workers, sometimes psychologists. And they want to now. They're like, oh yeah. Now we've got it. It's got to be trauma. You know, that's what it is. And. And when I see kids in action at SeaTac still, and I'll say, you know, that kid has untreated ADHD. You can't forget about that. You know, I agree there's trauma there, but come on, we have to be mindful that all of these things matter. So then when you look at all three, my life now at SeaTac on Fridays is trying to do all three lenses, which is great, except... We really don't know what to do about it. You know, and I, and the students look at me and go, so what do you think doc? And I'm like, don't look at me. I got nothing. You know, I don't know how it all, how, how do you tease it out of there when it's that complicated? And no wonder docs are running and hiding from this. They're seeing these kids in their office and, and their first response is, oh, I got to get this kid to a psychiatrist because my gosh, I can't figure this out. And, and so I'm if-
0: saying, if you are saying I got nothing, and with your expertise, right. I mean, I really got nothing.
1: But yeah, well, we, and I just, I just put, a, I just wrote an email this morning to um, the foster care director, Dr. Scheid, you know, who's been on the podcast, you know, and Jeanette is great. And I, and I basically said to her, we need to have a, co- a conversation because we're seeing all these kids at CTAC now that are residential kids and they're coming in. And literally one kid we saw recently had nine meds. He was on. 800 of Thorazine. He was on three different antipsychotics. He was been in residential for four years. And, and I told her, I said, I don't even have any idea where to start with that kid. How do we do that? And because if you're, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, you know, you're going to, if you're treating because severity of symptoms equals complexity of mental illness, then you're gonna get in trouble because we know well that other things can really cause intense symptoms. And, and we found that out. It, you know, a kid that has multiple meltdowns a day that are intense doesn't have bipolar by definition, but yet that's often how it's looked at. So so we've got to figure out, I think, how to do this. So one of the ways we've figured it out is to look at regulation. So, <laughs> regulation is the the epicenter of our universe. It really is, and and this is I always say, gasp, regardless of the diagnosis. That's what's fun about this, and we're going to talk about that model you mentioned on before. This is what's fun about this. It doesn't matter what underlies it. This helps everybody.
0: So, so the the first probably the first goal of regulation is. Our own regulation, right? Yes.
1: Yep. In fact, you know, the uh, conscious discipline, which is a evidence based model that schools are using now, and they have a, their website is basically consciousdiscipline.com. It was a, a trauma informed uh, model that was developed by an educator in New Mexico. And, and it is basically how do we stay sane? dealing with hard kids. So the adult regulation is the focus of their models, really good. And they've got some great pearls and we, and you're right. That's exactly what has to happen. If, if you're and like Ross Green says, if you've got inflexible kids that are explosive, you have to be flexible to deal with them. And the appearance of collaboration is not collaboration. So, so this is it. This is my little DSM five, Mantra, you know, not to knock it, but but it's got limitations. Categorical diagnoses is an automatic issue, you know. And what's really astounding to me is, you know, ADHD is not a brain-based construct, and only now. And one of the one of the professors at Western that I've worked with, and he's an NIH grantee, and he's helped us at CTAC. He said, "Just now, literally the last two years, there's now a project that's happening at Vanderbilt and Madison, and also University of Chicago, where they're looking at neuro, neuro neuroscience correlates of ADHD. Finally, but but you just keep, so the more complex things are, the less you can use DSM five because." Again, it's a it's it's designed by psychiatry for starters. Peds has never really had any input, and but the evidence base matters. You can't just make stuff up. And there's a new NIH matrix, you know, it's called the RDOC matrix. That's really cool. It's it's a very fairly simple yet super complicated matrix that all NIH grants now have to follow. And it kind of goes from molecules to neighborhoods. You know, it's really it's really uh, comprehensive. And it looks at, so we really need translational basic science in the clinic kind of research to help us with our model. And that's kind of what we really want to do. But for now, we have to just have conceptual models that we can talk about. So the other thing about regulation that I wanted to mention is it's a critical part of resilience. And so and resilience is now a hot, hot topic. Many people really don't understand it because it's not automatic. We like to think that. Kids are resilient. They get better. You know, they're good, you know, especially young kids. And we know now that is a real dangerous statement to make because we know early trauma often is really hard to get at and it often has big impact later. But what we know is the two protective factors for resiliency are what we call mastery efficacy, kind of either or. And that that's basically your inherited IQ, your inherited athletic skills, anything you're good at. And we know that's important. And then also the relatedness and connectedness, that is a huge piece of the puzzle. So both of those are protective. But we also know very clearly that affect regulation is a risk factor. So persistent dysregulation is chips away at those protective factors. So so when I do meds now, when I talk to other docs about this, I'm telling them, guess we're helping regulation by dealing with these, you know, and, and it's also what everybody's talking about. It's the elephant in the room. It's, you know, it's the it's the squeaky wheel. So it makes sense to address it. So we'll spend the rest of the time talking about that. And the other thing to remember is trauma healing begins with regulation. If you're trying to, if you're working with a kid with trauma, that's the only way you can start because without regulation, you can't do anything. You can't teach them. You can't do therapy with them. You can't do speech therapy with them. You you, You can't do anything. And they can't be, their their social performance is impacted. Their behavioral performance and academics are all impacted because they're spending so much time in those crazy, dysregulated states.
0: This makes me think of the news story. So we're at February 3rd right now. So this may air down the road, but so there's a story in the news about a nine-year-old kid who is threatening to hurt herself and threatening to hurt her mom and is basically in a major meltdown and the police get called and the police tase this kid and use tear gas. And I'm like, all I can think of is this is a nine-year-old and this is like the best you've got. And how can you intervene with regulating that child when you are attacked? I mean, now you've just given them more reason to fight because now the threat's real. I mean, it, it what is, on it,
1: earth? I know. Well, that and that story, I, when I heard that, it reminded me of so many kids that we see when they're in residential and they're perched on. And I'll talk about this in a minute. They're kind of right at the edge of losing it. And and it and what, what I often tell residential staff when I do consulting there, it's like, think about it. We've got videotape of this. This kid was on the ledge. And you shoved him over the edge and then consecrated him for falling. Hmm. You know? And you did it. And not because you wanted to, but you started telling him, Hey, keep it up. And you're losing all that progress you made. Come on, dude, you know, you're doing it. And, and the whole idea is, Oh, he's just doing that again to get attention, you know, when, and that they don't realize how close he is to losing it. And, uh, and that's, when we see a police work, you know, and they're they're working with you know people that are dysregulated, the good ones are good at de-escalating them by doing some things like connecting and and qu- getting quieter and and being confident enough to go closer so they're not a threat. And and we try that's what we try to train in our behavior management programs at the school is is you've got to try to keep yourself from ever getting to that level 4 state we call it because if you do you're never going to need restraints but when we look at we had just had a child, you know, die at a, at a residential center in Kalamazoo in May and in in the lunchroom because he threw a piece of toast at somebody you know and he ended up being restrained and someone heard him say I can't breathe and it was a George Floyd re- redo and and that was T- tragic the place fell apart after that happened because they, because he went from, you know, having a meal with all the other kids and they were in the place to being completely out of control. And the staff had no idea how to handle it, you know, clearly. And now the place is closed. And and now we do the post-mortem psychological autopsy.
0: Right. Thing. And now, yeah. and now you, you know, there's legal yeah. stuff as there should be. I mean, there are consequences to that, but do the, do the behaviors change? I think back to, um, episode two with Moira Salagi, who talked about working with foster care and she told this beautiful story about two kids that get dropped off at the welfare center and the kids, I mean, they're little kids and they're freaking out. And this woman comes in, who's going to take them and she gets quiet and she gets down and Moira tells the story. And I mean, you're just like, Ah, And then the kids stop sobbing and they're able to, to continue. And it, 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 I mean, it really was just an exquisite story about this regulation that came from the adult.
1: Right. And, and that's where, that's, that's the, uh, Basically, external regulation. You know, like the and that's what we have to do with babies. That's what's so interesting. When babies are little, they they they've got no ability to regulate themselves. It's all about us. And then Mm. we move to the co-regulation stage where we're sharing, but we're we're, they're doing more of it. And then self-regulation. And it's always a moment in when parents go, "Wow." He he handled that himself. That's so cool. You know, I guess we're making headway. And it's really not about how old they are. It's about where they are in that stage. And so with, with trauma, we see very commonly this infantilization is the, the fancy word where the child regresses back to the infant stages. He might be 15. And, and instantly there's this gut level of revulsion from the staff like, oh, now he's doing the baby talk thing. Oh my God, I'm so sick of him. He's such a menace, you know, and the, and the kid looks up and reads that facial expression. And then there they go. Now they're into that, you know, fight or flight mode and they can't get out of it. So anyway, this is all so interesting and so logical you know which is really fun for me i've spent so many years not getting this and trying to be and being stuck in a paradigm that was not ever going to be enough but yet it's what we had you know hey i got to i got to write something down on the chart
0: and right right and, i got to call yeah. this i got to yeah. call this something when you're talking about that regulation Piece for babies I mean I think we can teach that in simple ways I I'm reminded of I was in the newborn nursery and there was a brand new dad and he was holding the baby but at arm's length and the kids screaming and he had no idea. and I said well you know, just pull him close and I kind of showed him how to hold him close and I said and I took my hands on his shoulders and I said okay just move back and forth it's not now, you got, no, now you got now you got the mommy sway yeah. and it was like everybody just went, ah, and the baby stopped crying. And I said, when, see, you got
1: it. Well, see dad and dads don't have that caregiver gene like moms have. And I think that is, we always joke about the bomb hold, you know, that when new dads, you know, it's like they hold the good, like, or the exactly. the, athlete, the athletes got them like a football. It's like, well, sometimes that works the football hold, but yet you you got to be flexible. And some kids need, you know, like, hey, they need you to sing kind of loud and play a rock song, you know, because they're kind of, they're a little bit sleepy and other kids, it's like, man, if you play Mozart for that kid, he's going to flip out because that's going to trigger him. And, and people that don't get that go, well, well, I've had three kids. It's like, yeah, they've all been pretty even except this one. And, you know, welcome to you. are lucked out until now. Now you've got a, a, tr- a tough kid with temperament issues but that's probably all it really is but it's going to take some time to get to to do it but then you also see when those kids come out like that and the parents are substance abusers you know of course it's going to trigger them and I haven't I've talked to so many adults that say, you have no idea how many times I've used because this baby wouldn't stop crying. I had no other way to do it. And you think, you know what? That's totally logical. You shouldn't be put in jail because that happened. You should have some sort of, you know, intensive treatment that involves your baby, you know, which right. is the system would do.
0: But I that. but I think that the the point being with a lot of this is it's not about a medication. Right. It's not about something's wrong with your baby it's like this system that has to work around them and it is um, interactive it's not just like
1: unilateral yep no question so this this, so we're we're talking about the brain now so i apologize to people that don't want to too bad
0: (laughs) oh my god this is the part where i shut down right so so my amygdala is on fire
1: (laughs) for, for you leah So this is just kind of a schematic we put together, and it's basically, and I'm going to mostly talk about the middle of it, but it starts with the core base, which is kind of IQ and inherited language skills and learning style and all the things you come from the baby factory with. The second level is sensory processing, because we know now that's an an incredibly important part of regulation. But the, the brakes accelerator balance part is what we're going to focus on. That's where my cartoon comes from that you mentioned earlier. So, so every this is every paper that's written about brain function has something like this in it. And and as complicated as brain controls are, it's very quite quite simple. The brakes and the accelerator have to balance to get regulation. And and which sounds like okay, that sounds too simple. But it's it's really quite true. So the accelerator is kind of coming from the brain stem, the bottom of the brain, the limbic system, and and then the brakes are your prefrontal cortex or think about the forehead, you know, so, and the connections between the two are intricate and incredibly complicated. But, but the idea of these pedals really helps, uh, I think, explain kind of how this works.
0: So and well, that's good. Of- that's good for me because. Yeah, neuro was always my tough <laughs> sub. Between picture. between that and medical genetics and statistics, uh, yeah, you lost me. But I, I'm good. And unfortunately, um, listeners may not be able to see the pictures, but right. I We're think you're pretty parents. good at, at describing it.
1: And, and, I, and I've really had luck explaining this to parents and even kids. You know, they kind of like the idea because they can see kind of that big picture. And some of them are getting it in science class. So... The accelerator function is very interesting. It's the RPM of your brain. It's really and there's a kind of a genetic set point that we have, and some of us are highly revved, others are you know on the low end, um, and it's it's all good. It's propelled by that lower part of the brain. And what's interesting to me is there's this autopilot that is kind of the RPM, but then you can control it. So if if I was t- if I had started this t- podcast and said, you know what, if you listen to this and you take the quiz, the winner of the quiz is gonna w- gonna win a thousand dollars cash, there'd be all sorts of activity in your brain to get it. Wow, no way, a thousand bucks! I gotta listen to this. So just hearing that comment, the research shows that you give it a 10% increase in your in brain energy just by sitting up and taking notice. The same thing happens when the teacher says, "Test coming up. Here's what's going to be on it." You know, the smart kid that's kind of sort of not listening because the teacher's struggling that day or whatever. If they hear that, they're like, "Uh-oh, I got to listen to this." The kid with bad ADHD is probably didn't hear it and he's like, "What's everybody looking? What what do everybody doing that? What are you doing? Hey, what what's going on?" It's like she's talking about the test. (laughs) Okay. But yet that's a very interesting thing. So this is what you literally, you can do with this. And mindfulness is part of this. The, when you look at Dalai Lama's crew, he's, he's very neuroscience oriented. Now, you know, he comes to all the neuroscience meetings and he has been able to, to document That, you know, those guys can literally think their heart rate down to like 36 beats a minute just with the brain-body connection. And a lot of that is accelerator driven. And the other piece of the accelerator is motivation. So intrinsic motivation is, you know, the kids call it, you know, the give a you-know-what level. You know, my give a you-know-what level for school is minus infinity, you know, which I loved. And I asked a kid, "Is that the lowest?" He goes, "No, the lowest would be minus infinity squared." You know that, but yet I ask him, "When is it good?" Well, it's good if I'm playing video games. It's like the other way; it's infinity. I said, "Oh, really? Any any video game like Barbie dress up? No, it's got to be a shooter game, Uh, Call of Duty." You know, Grand Theft Auto. It's like, okay, so it's got to be something you like. And so intrinsic motivation is a key to this accelerated function. It's tied to the reward center. And it's what drives us to do the right thing. Extrinsic motivation, on the other hand, is you'll do that because I said so. You know, I'm the dad, you know, you're gonna do it, or I'm the judge and you're gonna do it because you're on probation and whatever that is. And so the key is is intrinsic motivation is, um, you know, it's a very inherited piece because a lot of ADHD symptoms involve a low intrinsic motivation and coming from the accelerator being too low. So increasing the remote control of this is important because the a lot of this stuff happens by by itself you don't want a panic attack you know if you've got panic disorder genetically and you struggle with that one of the things we can tell about that is patients that have that you don't ask them how it's going you ask them how many times are they going outside or going leaving the house now this was before covid of course but th- that panic thing is just it just happens and we see that the same thing with with stress and anxiety and anger and even mania from things like real mood disorder, they just kind of happen. You're not wanting it to happen. It happens. You take stimulant medication, either prescription or illegal. uh, It also increases it. Now the decreases happen with things like depression. Narcolepsy is probably the, the most overt, you know, when you talk to people that have that and they say, Oh yeah, I can't stop moving or I drop." You know, if I'm in if I'm in the store and on a long line, you know, I have a tolerance, but pretty soon I'm down. I'm down. I look like I died, especially if my meds are wearing off. Opiates lower it. Cannabis lowers it. So there's some those kind of things are way, and you can also do go in either direction with mindfulness, as as we'll talk about in a second. So that's the accelerator. The brakes is different, but it is again prefrontal cortex. It involves working memory. And working memory is that part of your brain that allows you to stop what you're doing and go do something else and come back, and, and you should be in the same place. It has it's a huge role in reading comprehension and emotional processing, etc. The other piece of the breaks is, is the focusing, which is way more than just an on-off switch for attention. It involves locking on a target, shifting and being agile. We call it attentional agility. And then being able to sustain long enough to finish the task. Planning and organizing is part of that. So is knowing how you look. Self-monitoring, unbelievably uh, problematic for kids with trauma issues. They have no idea how they look to the other folks. And when you show them videotapes, sometimes they'll say, who's that kid? He looks like he's mad. It's like, it's you. Oh, no, it isn't. I don't look like that. It's like, well, ask the other kids in the group. And they're like, yes, you do. We run when you look like that. When you look like that, it's about, you're about ready to hit us. What? And they just are so intrigued yet offended that anybody would say that. Impulse control is part of this. So is something called interoception, which is the internal internal body awareness of, of states like thirst, Hunger, et cetera. And all, and all of that has a huge role in regulation. So, if you put those things together, here we are at the famous Goldilocks comfort zone slide that uh, I've been using now for a while. I stole this from the OT literature, but we just kind of made it fun. And so, and it's really the, the optimal arousal, we call the, the, the just right energy level, is where we want to be. That's the Goldilocks comfort zone. Ironically, the autistic kids that see this often say, what is she doing in there? She doesn't belong. She doesn't belong. She doesn't belong. One kid made me tape a picture of Christopher Robin over the top of her, and he wouldn't let me go on unless I did it. I happen to have it in my, in my desk. I don't know why, because I had one of the poop pictures in there. And he goes, Christopher Robin, that's who should be there. And he just couldn't. So we we now joke it's it's an ASD screener to see what they do. <laughs> reminds me
0: of the Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the other. Right,
1: right, exactly.
0: <laughs> so so that so that's
1: what's, the interesting thing is. As you can see, Leah, the, it's not a flat line. So the cool part about regulation is it's not flat. If it's flat, there's something wrong. You know, maybe you're on the wrong med or whatever. It's like, there's diurnal variations, circadian variations. It's just life variations. And, and so, but, but, but we want everybody to be in Goldilocks to have optimal outcomes. Now, if we go below the line into the, the low energy level, we call that EOR. but we, we want to focus. This is not emotion. This is energy. So it's not Depressed er, sad er, it's it's tired and sleepy Eeyore, it's it's bored. You know, so boredom is a huge part of low energy. Uh, and lots of times, when you've got issues, boredom is not a good thing, and it leads to other things. And so, the other part of this is, is you go above the line. Then we've got Tigger, you know, because he's the poster child of of a uh, you know of ADHD, et cetera. And Tigger level is also excitement and passion, you know, and we all go there and, and we, we most of us have this built in kind of, awareness that you know what i'm getting a little revved i gotta kind of back off i gotta take a walk i've gotta take a breath and it might be a presentation it might be a meeting that's getting heated uh because what we don't want to end up in is tigger and i've got here this is the sanitized version tigger on mountain dew tigger on crack is kind of how we started this um because the kids thought that was hilarious some of them who actually had been on crack could tell me that but but Tiger on Mountain Dew is the is the fight or flight system, and the cool part of of the brain is there's multiple fail safe procedures that the brain uses to make sure you need to be in fight or flight, because fight or flight is really metabolically costly. So you don't want to go there, and it's all this kind of stand you know stand by checking for predator status, you know, not a predator, not a predator, false <laughs> alarm, you know, like somebody who stinks up behind you, like a friend thinks it's funny to up behind you and scare you on at night outside when you're leaving a meeting. Those are the guys you want to smack because like, why would you do that? You know that I can't stand that. But, and then you, but your system is like, you're ready to belt the guy and you go, Oh, wait a minute. It's him. Okay, fine. What I was talking about before there's, those moments when you're right on the verge of tigger to tigger on on crack or so, that's when it's incredibly important to have strategies so you don't push them over. And sometimes the strategy is just waiting, you know, and letting and making it a safe place so the kid can come down on their own. So the, the other thing that's important to know here is, is we see these shifts of energy, the more dysregulated and the rapid we see these shifts happen. We'll see kids go from ER to Tigger and back and forth. Sometimes I've had teachers tell me 50, 60 times a day. And it's not because they're not bipolar. It's just they have dysfunctional arousal. And sometimes one of the other pieces of this is the zone can shrink with things like dehydration, poor nutrition, low blood sugar, feeling sick, not sleeping enough. There's a lot and not feeling safe. There's a lot of reasons that kind of narrow that window of tolerance. And so, so that is really kind of a descriptor of of how the brain works. So then you have to say, okay, so wow, what do we do about that? How do we deal with that? And and so again, I just talked about this actually, how do we widen that zone? Well we sleep, we get the right amount of sleep. Hydration. In fact, it's interesting, hydration has been studied by some folks that we're working with now at Texas Christian University. They they developed the trust-based relational intervention model and they did some research. Basically, thirst is a late sign of hydration. And and in their summer camp program they did with foster parents and foster kids, they, they were stunned at how many of the kids had, you know, concentrated urines. They didn't have any symptoms until they did. And so that was fascinating. And the nutrition piece too, hunger is a very late sign. uh, And, and mostly uh, what they're reacting to is a drop in blood sugar. And so we've been finding that, you know, protein snacks every two hours, which is something that the adult fitness literature is very kind of well, has well established that uh, it has a big impact on kind of regulation it can. And the other piece is felt safety. And the felt safety term comes from the folks at TBRI. And it's, it's basically, it only matters if the child feels it. It doesn't matter how we think, oh, this is a safe place for you. If they don't feel it, it ain't safe. And so if they feel safe, and this could be in their aftercare, there could be babysitters, This can be before school, during school, during, you know, it, it may change from class to class, but that all those things, if, if the kid is not feeling safe, that shrinks that zone and makes them more susceptible to being dysregulated. Okay, so I'm almost done.
0: So <laughs> I'm hanging ne- in there. The I, next- you know, and I wish, I, I want people that are listening to sort of close your eyes and and just visualize this picture of Goldilocks being kind of on this wave up and down, but it, it's a gentle undulation on the lakeshore kind of thing. Oh. And the Eeyore is totally flat and Tigger is sort of the wild wave. So it's way up at the top and mm-hmm that wild crashing, if it went back and forth so much, I mean, you'd be tossed and turned. So again, seeing that sort of tigger at the high end and Eeyore at the low end, but I liked what she said about, this is about energy. This is not about mood disorder.
1: Yeah. Cause you can be sad in any of those places. In fact, what we often say, and how, how often do you see this? And foster parents know this, the laugh, the manic laugh, and they know something bad's coming. It's like kids laughter is so great, you know, and I got two grandkids, three grandkids now. And when they're they're giggling, it's like there's nothing better. And then everybody has that moment. It's like, oh, that does not sound good. That's a, that's especially like babies will do that. They're they're laughing. And all of a sudden they're wild because they were they were hungry and they were distracted from it. And so everybody knows that. So that's one of those things that ticker on crack can be manically laughing. And then all of a sudden your anger firestorm comes and it's the energy level didn't change. The affect of that energy level did because there was no sign that it was resolving.
0: That's maniacal laugh is what horror movies are made of, oh right? My God.
1: Yeah, I mean, you just know. And foster parents always go, oh yeah, I know that laugh. And moms are really good at that. In fact, sometimes dads go, why are we leaving? That was me when I, when my daughter was younger. Why are we leaving the restaurant? And she'd look at me like, oh, you so don't get it. It's like Mr. Behavior Expert who has no clue. You know, like, yeah, that pretty much is. So, so, so the last thing I wanted to say about this is, if you can this here's the payoff for for prolonged, optimized regulation. What we know now, this is really huge, prolonged regulation eventually leads to integration and and basically neuroplastic changes in the brain. And we know when regulation is optimized, everything's better. You know you have optimized learning, behavior, attention, memory, et cetera. And so this is really important, and this is something Bruce Perry, who's a child psychiatrist that some some of the listeners I'm sure know, he's an MD PhD, and he's his second uh, edition of his book, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, has a, a chapter that talks about these these brain findings that come from Eric Kandel's memory research using sea snails, believe it or not, <laughs> crazy that that basically any adult that is attuned and responsive to a child will help the kid rewire. And and, when they're, and we, we call these sacred moments, and, and, and teachers will sometimes get spooked when a kid, when they just feel this emotional connection, they don't know what to do with it, especially if they've got trauma histories. But what we always say is, you know what, when that's happening, even a minute, a minute of that starts to cause synaptogenesis. And if you have four of those in one hour, the d- research is you'll have t- permanent long-term neuroplasticity.
0: It so, almost reminds me a little bit of meditation, of which I'm not great because mm-hmm. you know, you're sitting and you've got your eyes closed and you're trying to focus on the breath and you've got like a gazillion things flying by. But then maybe for a couple minutes, you're just in this zone and then it may go, but sort of that... I don't know. It's just that feeling that you—it's—it's it's indescribable. But you know when it happens.
1: And that's and that's what we try to t- train our students at CTAC Is some of the kids we see have had a million assessments. They've been a, through a bunch of forensics. You know, did did this really happen? Where you and but that when they feel safe, then they'll the students will say it kind of spooked me because. He's he kind of leaned in and started talking and I don't think he's tell, told anybody that and we were watching through the two-way mirror saying we know he's never told anybody because the worker just told us that none she knew none of this and it was that safety that and there was and then the kids will leave after a day with us and say I don't want to go you know I want you to live with me you know and sometimes <laughs> And it's a, that's an attachment issue partly, but it's also, I've never felt like this. And the foster parents are often like, you know what, I guess I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking about what's he going to do next, because I read all about what he did at the last place, but just being with kids, and this is what we say, being with them in real time and nothing else matters, and there's no cell phone, and there's no distractions. And sometimes that, and it doesn't have to be very long, and yet- think about that. You can change a kid's brain in an hour by having those things happen. So I really think that's, that's partly why we work on doing this.
0: I, I had an interesting conversation with um, a child abuse um, expert, Dr. Sarah Brown, and she said something I thought was really powerful was about belief in kids. And she said, right. You don't have to be 100% sure that what happened, but you have to be completely committed to the possibility that it did because those children where somebody doesn't believe them, particularly the caregiver, that it is a powerful wound.
1: It is. In fact, Jim calls that honoring their story, you know, that. Yeah that that is and that's it, and they they and they know you don't know for sure, but the chance of it, you know, because yeah. what they're hearing off is that couldn't have that, sh- that couldn't have happened like you said it. There's no way that guy would have done that. I know him, so that's basically saying to the kid what you think doesn't matter and and so, yeah, you're right, well, there.
0: and your reality isn't isn't true, so now that must feel kind of crazy, like
1: oh, it's true, true. It's Did it happen? It. no question. And Sarah Sarah's gifted about that, and that's why she's so good at her job at the CAC, and uh, you know, and and helping kids feel comfortable so she can do the exam. You know, it's not about. The exam with Sarah it's about the qualitative part of her connectivity with kids. And she's I met her once and went, I love her. She's amazing. Well,
0: and we'll be fortunate because she's on the episode airing March 10th. So okay. probably will be for this one. So um okay. yeah, th- there were some things that she said. I was like, wow, I never thought of that. That's so good.
1: So here's some things we can do, just to finish with, what can we do about this? You know, and mindfulness is powerful and i we've been doing a lot of work with with schools using the tbri model i mentioned earlier and breathing techniques they're magical it's fun to 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 convince like we did this when we were at ben, in Van Buren county at that school project i did we were having them look at their pulse rate while they were pissed you know and kind of and they would look at their pulse rate and see that it was high. And then and then they would do the breathing. And then they'd watch the pulse rate drop. And they'd go, this is fake. You know, this is a fake watch. There's no way that that's happening. It, and then we'd say, "Well, oh, how else do you explain it? I don't know. Do you feel better now? Yeah. Pulse rate's better. Well, I still don't think the breathing was the reason. And yet... These are middle school kids, but when, when the little kids start to see it, and we use candle breathing, we just like blow out candles one finger at a time. That's a really a cute one for little kids. Or hot pizza breathing where you kind of take in the breath, hold the pizza. And then it has got to be a 1 to 10 ratio, you know, one in uh, 10 times longer to breathe out. Dr. Porges calls it clarinet breathing, and I can relate to that because I played the clarinet. But those things are helpful. They almost always lower things, lower the energy level. The other piece that this acupressure magic mustache maneuver is it is magic. It's a it's a finger on your lip under your nose and a firm pressure. I use it all the time. It's 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 unbelievable.
0: How long do you hold it? So the finger would seconds. look yeah, the finger seconds. is horizontal for those yeah, of you horizontal. that you can't Pushing see arms. it under your yeah. under your nose. Right. Pushing and hard. how long do you hold it? 30 seconds, 30 seconds. Okay. And the
1: kids love it because it's goofy, you know? And so the teachers are now doing the visual. So they're do they're putting their finger up as the signal. So the kids should do it. And it's funny. And so some kids they're looking for the clue because again, the kids are so bad at correlating this, but it, it can drop you from Tigger on crack down to Tigger or even another level. It, it is crazy. Um, and our staff now, we, it's a big joke at CTAC is everybody's got magic mustache at the ready because we need it like 94 times a day when we've got really hard kids. So that's really a huge piece. The other part that we really like is trauma-sensitive yoga. Yoga has become a go-to for older kids for us. So we, we started using that back in the day. And, and one, one kid, what, as a boy, who thought yoga was for sissies and was for girls. And he thought it was stupid. And he was an athlete and I can bench press this much weight. And one of the girls that was at the school said, you can't even do one stance. I'll bet you money. You can't hold one stance for 30 seconds. And the kid said, well, you want me to do it in public or, or private so I can embarrass you? And she goes, oh, let's do it in public, you know, cause I want to watch you fall down. And, and basically he couldn't do it. And he was like, this is crazy. This doesn't look that hard. And then he realized later, you know what, and I'm doing that yoga stuff. I don't stay mad. That is so crazy. So the other kids were prompting him. This is the classic, Hey, do the effing yoga. So you don't get restrained, you know? And, and it was amazing because he saw that it helped. And, and now there's research evidence that if you do a yoga session before, rape victims do that before they do their trauma session, they have a 50% improvement in outcome. So it's it's really, really valuable. Um, sensory strategies, we use those all the time. They're varied. You often need an occupational therapist to help you, but you can try things like squeezy balls and, and heavy pressure. We tie... Therapeutic tubing to a chair in the school, oftentimes, and have the kids push on it with their legs. Uh, we we ha- heavy work carrying things, heavy work that's actually functional. which t- turns out to be the best. Like if you really have a big heavy box you want a kid to get because your back's a little sore, and they can climb down under the bottom of the cart to help you. They love it. And Grandpa helping carrying the wood after he chops it. But well, I've talked to grandpas hey, don't have them transfer the pile. They know you're doing it now just because it feels like a punishment now. You've got to be careful. But but those things can help. Vestibular strategies that involve like jumping or spinning. Some kids, are, they're magical. Music and movement strategies can help. Music therapy has been amazing for us. We've added it as a very valuable technique. And there's some very good scientific evidence that those things can help kind of in any direction. The music therapists that are gifted can sing the same song five different ways and sing it as a march or sing it as a reggae song or a rock song. And they can use the, the, the pace and the volume to kind of increase or decrease the brain level. And then, of course, medication for, the, for this uh, involved mostly treating the mood issues like anxiety or depression.
0: I love that that's at the bottom because I think you and I have talked about this before yep. that, you know, the longer we've done this, and I think maybe with the the science and, you know, the whole field of trauma, that the medication piece is a small piece and it's only yep. one piece. It's not the answer. And and I think a lot of times families and and probably physicians too are looking for that because it, it feels like a quick fix. I mean, this other stuff. It, I mean the mindfulness stuff that you mentioned you can do pretty quickly, but yep. you know to to get somebody to do yoga, to get somebody to go to OT, I mean some of that takes work, and I think we have to be able to say these are this is just like me writing you a prescription for a medication. I'm writing you a prescription for yoga.
1: Right, no, I think you're right, and I think what what's neat about this is if you know that you've got the backup plan, and that's what I've been telling when I tell parents when we do consulting now because I'm not treating them now, I'm just consulting, but I'll say, you know, look at the list we've got to try we can we can always do the meds, you know because that and that's that may be what we end up doing, and sometimes. When the severity level is at a certain point, it's like, you know what, I think we're kind of kidding ourselves if we think we can't do this because the family history is so loaded. But let's not jump do, to that unless we think maybe there's a safety issue and we really have to do it to help the kids survive at home for the next month or two.
0: And the other piece may be the medication may be something you need temporarily Right exactly. until you can treat train these other things that can then take the place of medication. So I think exactly. a lot of times parents are like, "Oh my God, is he going to have to be on this forever?" And you know the answer is maybe not, maybe not. So and the
1: older kids are often very motivated by that end point that they don't have to be on it, especially yeah. if if they're doing the other things. So so then the 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 brakes uh, improvements can oftentimes the accelerator treatment helps the brakes. Because some kids that have what looks like ADHD, what we find is in the trauma world, is they really had overwhelmed brakes. So the accelerator was so out of control that it that the brakes fail, just like any car or whatever. And and so how can we really know? And, and there's some ways we we're starting to use some of our rating scales to help us tell that because the brief is one of the things we use a lot. It's a brief, it's a behavior rating inventory for executive function. And there's a subset on the brief regulation index, which is kind of the, the typical ADHD stuff. And, and some of the kids we see at CTEC have high emotional regulation index, high behavior index, but normal cognitive index, or like just barely abnormal. And those kids are kind of, I think, are the ones that we need to really focus on that accelerator first. So that's one of the things we do. And then there's lots of executive function strategies. Peg Dawson is a major asset for this. And her she's written several books. And now there's lots of seminars and webinars out there. She is really gifted at this. And, and so that's something that we, we put a lot of those in our, our recommendations now. And then there's also this kind of amazing computer computerized working memory training called CogMed that's kind of unfortunately not being used enough. There's, they, they got like 60 referee journal articles on their website, you know, and they're using this from, for, from age four to age 90 for Alzheimer's and dementia and, and uh, substance abuse. It's amazing. Uh, so those, are but it's, it's hard, but p- families that are, and it's also expensive, but, but um, it, it's a, it's an option. And then medication, of course. And sometimes if you've got florid genetic ADHD from both sides of the family and our, in our world, substance abuse, especially with meth is literally an ADHD genetic picture. So we have, kids with both parents or meth addicts, that kid almost always has ADHD down there somewhere. And and we've learned, and you know this, Leah, but we've learned that in those kids, if you use stimulants as the first option, there's about an 80% chance you're going to have a bad outcome because their mood or anxiety is going to get worse. But if you have non-stimulant options, and we use a lot of those, the alpha twos especially, that can help in fact, there's something about Intuniv and catve that, um, that really are kind of regulation friendly and because partly because they don't wear off, you know, and just they've got this coverage and, it, and it's, they're very good at keeping the highs from getting out of control. They're not nearly as good at propping up the lows. And if you've got, you know, re- reward center issues and low motivation and kind of low arousal from a kid who's got... Inherited dopaminergic issues. That kid's going to need a a low dose stimulant most likely down the road. But you don't want to start with it. So that's and then and then here here's here's the payoff. So we get regulation better. Everybody sees it. Teacher goes, "Wow, he's really doing better." You know, he's he's. I think I know his baseline now. I didn't really know what he was capable of before socially. Wow, he's so much more likable. His behaviors better. His athletics are better. Coaches will tell us this. The speech therapists say, "Wow, you know, I get I get so much more miles per gallon out of him. You know, we can we get much more accomplished." Same thing with OT or, and especially trauma psychotherapists are are just amazed at how much more the child can handle talking about their life. And then this last thing, I'm going to figure this this is this is kind of an interesting piece. This is our model for for social communication. This is not autism, yes or no. And we've been working on this for a while, Dr. Heider at Western and I have been, we've written it up once, but we, we added regulation to this model and you guys can't see it, but but the pieces of this involve language, pragmatic language, which is body language analysis and, and signaling. Social cognition is actually the genetics for autism. but But we know that if you've got affect regulation issues, just think about it, an ADHD kid with bad impulse control and social anxiety. Oh my gosh, what a terrible combination. That kid often looks like they're traumatized or looks like they're autistic because they're not going to go out and meet anybody. And if they do, they're going to be impulsive. And so, and all of these pieces are impacted by trauma and prenatal alcohol exposure, but, but we've been, we've, we, it's really been nice when we get regulation f- fixed, so to speak, then we we often have a totally different uh, feel for the child's social issues. And it's like, you know what? I don't think he's autistic. He just, we couldn't tell because he was just couldn't get out of his own way.
0: Well, and I will put some links to um, several of these things that Mark has mentioned because I don't know about you, but I've been taking notes and I got two pages. So, um, and, and I apologize to folks out there that you can't see the slides, but honestly, I think sometimes you can listen to the words and, um, you know, maybe you need to listen to this a a second go round, but uh, I want to thank you so much, Mark. It's always a pleasure. And I love that, that your storytelling is, is such a a great educational strategy cuz it keeps right. people engaged. It right. keeps
1: them from turning pushing the uh, the, the the stop button. You know?
0: <laughs> hey, just on a quick note. Yeah. I mean this may be not quick at all. Marijuana, man, this is like a thing now. Um, you know, because it's become so um, you know, a lot of places now it's no longer illegal, and right. we got kids, we got parents, we got you know they're for sleep and anxiety, and and I mean, frankly, it works for that. But you often think about you know you got parents that are high trying to take care of kids, and they might not tune in. I mean, in in thirty seconds, what can you say about weed? Yeah.
1: Here's the, one of the issues with it, prenatal exposure is, is been researched and, and there's a guy at Brown, uh, I always forget his name till it comes to me. Um, he's, he's the marijuana guru and he sees that it reduces prenatal stress. He sees the impact of that, but he also is worried about data that we have now that says, okay, chronic pot exposure under 14 is a mess if you've got ADHD genetics and you have chronic pot use before 14 you have a high risk of a motivational syndrome if mm-hmm. you have psychotic symptoms from whatever reason you will have more of those if you if again chronic use so that's one of those are the main things that make me nervous is you know if the mom is going to use heavily while she's pregnant there if the if the kid has genetics for you know like say bipolar and ADHD, whoa, you could have some significant impact epigenetically and you know, before the kid's even born.
0: I think there's just so much that we don't know. So my final question that I ask my guests, um, and it's such a <laughs> fun thing. Fun. I think I'm going to do a whole podcast. It's just a summary of what people say. That's a great if idea. you could go back and talk to yourself when you were a resident, what would you say?
1: Well, I would definitely say, Hey, you better learn about traumatic impact and how you're going to, how, how that's going to fit. I don't think I would have changed my profession. I thought about, I thought maybe I would, maybe I would be a psychiatrist, but I, I don't think so. I think I would have just, I have directed myself to get the kind of guidance I needed and I found it, but not for 10 or 15 years. So that's, I guess that's the best way to describe it for me.
0: Drama matters.
1: Yes, it does. Yeah.
0: And that it seems like really, do we have to have like papers and studies to go like when bad things happen to people, it makes it, it, it has know. an impact, <laughs> you know, it doesn't just go away. It's, it's
1: tough. It's easy to avoid it. That's yeah. the thing. easier yeah. to avoid it than yeah. to confront it. So. Well,
0: and I've thought about would I ever do something else at some points, I think maybe a florist. You know, somehow just putting together. And then I think, oh, what about Mother's Day when you're under pressure and you got to put them all out? And then I'm like, well, maybe not. So, yeah, I I don't think I would have done anything different than be with kids. Um, so much hope and so much fun, right? Yeah. Well, listen, Mark, thanks so much for your time and be well. And um, here's to the pandemic passing and getting out and seeing our friends.
1: Yes, can't wait for that. Thanks, Leah. This is great work you're doing. Keep it up.
0: I love working with Mark so much. He is brilliant and funny and has such a great insight. And the families and the kids that he worked with adored him. I was really fortunate to stand next to him in an office for years, and hopefully I got a little... Bit of his brilliance um, that I could take home. So I'm really hoping that you'll spend some time listening. I know this is a longer recording, but it's just so much good stuff. So here's a couple of takeaways. Number one, there's so much to unpack, and I wish you could have seen the slides, but good news. Dr. Sloan shared a PDF with all of the slides, so you can find those in the show notes. Number two, take into consideration an integrated lens when you're looking at children who have difficult behaviors. So the lens would include the mental health lens, which takes into account genetics and epigenetics, the prenatal lens, where you consider factors during pregnancy, such as a substance use, particularly alcohol, and the trauma lens. And think about the trauma piece of cortisol during pregnancy, and then of course adverse childhood experiences in early childhood that can affect kids' behaviors. Number three, resilience is not automatic and requires mastery, efficacy, cognitive abilities, and relatedness. So relatedness would be the buffer to achieve regulation, and these can be the adults that really help kids modulate their behaviors. Number four, the brakes the brakes are the prefrontal cortex working memory planning focus and self-monitoring and all those connections that generate from that region of the brain and and help kids slow down and take into consequence lots of factors before they respond number 5 the accelerator this is the modulator of energy and rpm think tigger goldilocks and eeyore You don't want too much energy. You don't want too little energy. You want it to be just right. Number six, strategies to get from Tigger to Goldilocks. Mindfulness, acupressure, the magic mustache. I love that where you put your finger under your nose and above your lip and hold it there. Trauma-sensitive yoga, sensory factors using squeeze balls, heavy work, music, and medications that can be a backup plan. Number seven, the goal is to widen the Goldilocks zone. So other factors that might help with that are enough sleep, hydration, nutrition, the concept of felt safety, and prolonged regulation. And last but not least, number eight, any adult can make a difference. Find the sacred moments and just be with kids. Thanks again for your time today, and like I said, I really enjoy talking to Mark. He's so much fun, and I know that you all want to really enrich children's lives and spend so much of your time and energy doing just that. So I hope you can find some time to take care of yourselves and be safe. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.